Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is Ryan Burns coming to you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. Please find the show at The Browns Note on Twitter. You can find me at FTBL Sickness. Our guest today is going to be Mr. Matt Waldman. Finally, at long last, I get to sit down and talk ball with Matt. I've wanted to do this for a long time, and I'll just tell you that we recorded this by the time I'm now recording the intro to this, we recorded this conversation last night, um, and it was one of the most one of the most fun ones uh, I've done in in several years of two different podcasts, and um, been looking forward to chatting with him forever. And Matt is a longtime uh, semi-suffering Browns fan; he's managed to escape it just a little bit. We talked about that. We talked in some pretty good depth at the outset of this conversation about things that I hope will be of interest to you. They are fascinating to me. Uh, they are sort of more philosoph- philosophical elements to building a football team, to scouting evaluation. And for those of you, and I assume it's most of you, who are familiar with Matt's work, um, you, you know full well what kind of uh, effort and detail goes into it. And so hearing some of the backstory on how he got to where he is and what drove him to do it in the first place and sort of his views on how the world works, both with respect to football media, with respect to organizational behavior, with respect to evaluation process. Um, I just, I really enjoyed it. And then, of course, the second half of this podcast is us digging into the weapons in the 2018 draft. Matt's big piece of work every year is his rookie scouting portfolio. I've ordered it every year since I want to say 2010 when I first learned of its existence and it's just a fantastic piece of draft content. I can't recommend it enough. You should all immediately get onto Matt's site pre-order. Um, I'm already looking forward to the 2018 version, but you get a little preview of some of the goodness in this episode of the Browns Note because Matt goes into detail on some of the tight ends, running backs, wide receivers, and a little tease on the quarterbacks because he'll be back to talk about a specific quarterback, and I'll leave that tease at that. I'll tell you again, this is a long one, but it is, in my view, well worth the listen. Break it up if you need to. Matt goes into, uh, into some really stark detail on a lot of topics that I find interesting, and so I really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do, too. Once again, this is Matt Waldman on the Browns Note Podcast. <laughs> All right, I'm very excited now to be joined for the first time by Matt Waldman. He of RSP, Rookie Scouting Portfolio fame. He's also a staff writer for Football Guys, and he's one of the people I've been wanting to talk to, not only on this podcast, but the old podcast that we never got around to doing it forever, years and years and years. I am so excited, Matt. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing great, Ryan. I've been looking forward to this myself. It's always fun chatting with you on Twitter, and and this has been a, a day that I've been looking forward to as well. Well, we share at least parts of a brain because one of my, you know, you have you have your own unique way of conveying things, and the ones that often connect with me are you are a, a master of the musical and or boxing metaphor for draft prospect tweet. And uh, I, I love that kind of stuff because it, anything where you can take a situation and sort of de-emotionize it and put it into a totally different context for purposes of clarity, that's the stuff I'm looking for. And that, for that, for me anyway, is, uh, is one of the things I was looking forward to talking to you about is just sort of the way you go about your work. Because for me, it's a, it's a unique 
consumption. Uh, and it, it used to be that by the time I got the RSP, I was actually pretty studied up myself. That this year will not be the case, so I'm even more excited. Um, but sort of tell me if you would, because the way I, the way I started doing these podcasts was back when Sen and I were doing footballsickness.com. The whole concept originally was, well, we didn't think there was enough good football content out there. And it turned out pretty quickly. We realized, well, wait, that's not true. We've just been looking in the wrong places. <laughs> and you were one of the first people whose work I came across that persuaded me that no, 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 I'm, I'm good sitting out here in talk about this stuff land and I can, I can sort of do my part educating others by pointing to guys like you. And so that's what I'm hoping to do here. Um, tell me how, how you got started doing what you do in this industry and sort of, you know, the, the differences over the course of time as this, it's evolved pretty quickly just from the time, time I've been doing it. And I'd love to hear just sort of your, your broad 20,000 foot industry observations. Yeah, I mean, it really has been. It's been quite a trip. I mean, when you take a look at this, I, I think about you know getting started doing this. It was just you know I had a full time career and and I was just a, a fantasy football, you know, hobbyist who, who you know met a bunch of guys at work and we started a league back in you know the mid nineties and you know before the internet really even took a foothold and you know, in households across America. And then, you know, probably about five, six years later, I started getting interested in the idea of writing for a fantasy football website. And I had done some writing, you know, probably part time as a freelance writer and, um, over the years. And I, I just came across, I came across this article from Gil Brandt, um, on NFL.com and he was talking about the draft and he had his, he had a mock draft up and he was, and he was writing about Brian Westbrook and he was talking about Brian Westbrook in a way where he said, you know, if Westbrook was two inches taller and 10 pounds heavier, he'd be a top five overall pick. And it just got me thinking about why is that? Like if he's so good, why wouldn't he just be a top 10 overall pick right now? You know, I mean, what's, what's, what's the difference with all of that? And I, and I, and I started realizing that as someone who had, you know, thinking about my own job and career and the type of responsibilities that I had and what I had to do, a lot of it's, you know, you play the political game at work. You oftentimes you, you know, you may interview people and, and when you interview them, what, what kind of things you're looking for. And when, and when you're trying to hire somebody for a position, you know, everyone has some sort of level of cover their assets about, you know, how they're going to hire somebody. And, and I think that I just started making all these different connections between, you know, what we do in our everyday lives and what the NFL must be really like. And, and, it, and it just kind of got me interested in, in writing about actually studying football players and studying, you know, really trying to study talent and and thinking, what if I just like eliminated all the political BS in this in a way of just doing studying talent and not worrying about what school they came from, how tall they were, you know, just how good they could be and and just focus on that. And that that's kind of how the RSP got started. And it was just one of those things where, you know, at that time, I mean, when when I got started, uh, you know, I was a fantasy football writer who who basically had some skills with 
some databasing and some some processes that I could put together to monitor performance. And you know, I remember telling some of my league mates about what I was doing, and I remember them just looking at me like I could tell the look. It was just you ever you ever talk to somebody who's just looking at you like. They just think they 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 feel sorry for you. Like they, they, I just oh yeah, saw the, oh I yeah. Saw the, I just saw that lost. Like I feel sorry for you. You look excited about this, but do you really think that this is going to be something? Like, and at the time, I just really I thought you know I'm just going to do this for a year to see what this is like because it's just is interesting. And when I when I went to do it, Ryan, I mean I I remember. You know, I, I took a couple weeks off work. It was my, it was probably 2006 was my first RSP, and and I was, um, I was studying guys like I don't even remember half the guys. I remember the quarterback from from Bowling Green. His first name was Omar, and I cannot remember his last name. And he ended up playing in the in the the World League for a little while. But um, he got he was in he was a part of um. I can see you know, his he, face and I can't come up with the name. He, yeah, wow. he's the guy he's the guy, you know, he he was he was the first he was like the first main quarterback for the Ohio State coach now before the Ohio State coach became a hot property. Um you know, and for for Meyer, you know, for Urban Meyer, he he played for Urban Meyer. But I just remember going and, you know, renting a hotel room and bringing my bringing my um desktop and a T and a and a and a and my TiVo to that I had bought like six months before to TiVo every game I could, and just sat in that room and probably did nothing but watch game after game after game. Got maybe about three hours sleep a night, and and just ordered takeout and had it come to had it brought to the hotel room, and and did that. And I thought, and when I finished, I thought, you know, at the end of this, like two week thing. I'm either going to hate this and I'm, I'll be glad that I have a day job or it's going to completely change how I feel about things. And, and it's going to, it's going to grow from there. And that's exactly what's happened. And, it, you know, I got finished and I thought, wow, I love this. I just love doing this. And at that point it, it just kind of, it just continued to grow. And, and when you look at this, you know, with, with Twitter, and with, you know, as much as social media can be a whole other subject of, you know, what's good and bad about it. I mean, I, I look at Twitter and I think about how much now there's almost this egalitarian approach to being able to analyze the game. It's not just restricted to big corporate media and, and people have a voice that, you know, some, that's the, the great thing about and the matting up thing about it is that everyone has a voice and that can be somebody who maybe not deserve that, to have that voice in certain realms to Life's people who trade-offs <laughs> exactly, you know, but that's the, that's the cool thing about it is that you, you kind of, you kind of get to see how that is. So, and then, the communities that form around that. So, I mean, it used to be a chat community, you know, that was a, the heavy in the chat boards and now it's turned into, you know, social media being kind of the, the wave that carries everybody along. Well, that's been the really, the greatest part of it to me is that it's, it's so much easier to find good stuff if you know how to look for it. And, and Twitter 
for me has been great for that because you do know what you almost immediately when you get on there, you've at least got a couple of people you think you trust and then they point you to a couple others and so on and so forth. And it, it, you know, even where one of those little paths might go sideways at some juncture, you've still learned something along the way. And so to me, that's been the greatest part of having started a site and started doing podcasts is my understanding of stuff in terms of football, strictly the football side of things, has grown from from where I thought I knew a little bit to where now I realize just how much I don't know still. And it's it's that to me that is probably the thing that draws a guy like you and me to this game is that it's it's a never ending bottomless pit of stuff to learn and yeah and to organize. Yeah, yeah it's it certainly is, and it's one of those things that you look at what other people are doing, and there's you have this really weird push pull because you, you know you're doing your own thing and you want to stay true to what you're doing, but you could. You know, you you spend an hour on Twitter and look around and you think, well, I want to learn this. I want to learn that. And then you can make your list and you go, well, I'm about five years back <laughs> already at this point about what I want to learn and what I'm doing. And 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 it's and it can be an ultimate distraction, but it also can be just a great thing. And then just the connections that you make with people. I mean, you the it's the weirdest thing. You run into people that you would never think that you would that you would end up establishing a relationship with whether it's uh, an NFL scout whether it's you know and someone who does analytics for the league um, someone who you know whether it's a football coach I mean I had someone write me I had someone write me um, last week who is a um, student student, I don't know what his title is, but he's basically works for LSU. He got a job at LSU and he wanted to thank me because he watched all my RSP film room videos on YouTube and said that he learned the game from watching those. And that when he interviewed for the LSU football job, they told him that they had never had anyone interview who knew the game as much as he did, who wasn't in football. Um, beforehand, dude, and he was, and he <laughs> that should me. be on the cover of the RSP every year. <laughs> it was, it was insane. And he wrote me from the combine, and he told me that he told, and this is the, and these are things that are just like great because this is what I, you know, you live for this kind of thing. Is when someone that happens and someone says to you that I'm at the combine, and I talked to, uh, your name came up among a couple of NFL scouts. And one said, I want to give that Matt Waldman dude a hug if I ever meet him, you know, for the content that he puts out. And it was just like, you know, I'm just some guy, you know, most people, you, you know, I'm just some guy with my own office doing my doing this work. And it's a and it never, and, you know, my intention was I hope that one day, you know, I had a crazy dream that I could come home and do this as a as a full time thing. But it wasn't, you know, when you get that kind of reception or you're, you know, as Browns fans, you know, you'll like this story as Browns fans. I'm at the senior bowl and I'm with Cecil Lammy. Who's, you know, he, he's, he's, he's my colleague on the audible at football guys. And he, uh, he covers the Broncos, uh, you know, as a radio host in Denver. And, you know, I, you know, I grew up, I grew up the Browns fan. My father was in Denver. Um, the whole, you know, the, all the, 
all the the most painful moments of those playoffs. You know, my father was a Broncos fan, so you, you know Oof. we. Uh, yeah, I didn't so, remember that. Wow. So and I grew up. I mean, I I remember going to visit my dad in the 1980s and him being all excited about John Elway and you know watching the whole development of John Elway where it culminated with with you know what we went through as Browns fans with those playoff games. So we're at the you know, fast forward to the senior bowl and we walk into a Starbucks that's nearby the practice facility during, during the breaks between practices during the lunch hour and to go get Cecil a coffee. So I stand in line and there's these, or I'm sitting on the, I'm actually sitting on the couch talking to Cecil and in walks John Elway. And with John Elway or two other guys, they both looked like they were former football players, which in fact they turned out to be. One of them was Lance Zeno, and he's a former offensive lineman who played sure. for the Browns for a yeah. cup of coffee. So they both walk in. All three of them walk in. Cecil says hello. You know, John nods at him. And I look at Cecil being the smart ass that I am and say, I'm going to go sack John Elway. I'm going to get my, my own personal fan revenge right now. And I get up to go get in line, you know, and I'm just joking with Cecil and he's laughing at me. And I, and I get up and stand up over there. And before I can even get in line, Lance Zeno turns around, sees me and he, he was talking to John and he turns around away from John, you know, taps his buddy on the shoulder and John was like talking to them and he, they like turned their backs on him to like talk to me because they recognized me from the RSP film rooms and said that they loved what I was doing and they Dude, learned what? a lot about other positions. <laughs> and John Elway is literally looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? I turn back and look at Cecil and Cecil's like just looking at me like I cannot believe this. And I was the same way. I'm, you know, I'm. You know, I'm just some guy at the, you know, doing the thing at the senior bowl. And I have a former NFL offensive lineman and a former running back going, yeah, I see his stuff. I favorite his, I, I favorite his blog. Yeah. I like what he does. He's like, yeah, he goes, I've learned a ton about positions that I would never know about. I'm trying to, and then he goes, yeah, I'm trying to get me and me and this guy are trying to get jobs you know, um, in Denver, that's why we're hanging out with John right now. And John's just staring there, staring at us with their back to him that's <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. So I joked around that I didn't get to sack John Elway, but I got two guys who were trying to get jobs with him, basically turned their backs on him because they were more excited about the fact they, that the YouTube guy <laughs> that they, that's that they recognized was there while they were trying to get a job from John Elway. Well, that yeah. gives me great hope to know that <laughs> real NFL guys are paying close attention. Because, But it doesn't surprise me because one of the things I've found about genuine football people who are in it for the love of the game, they are always open, always, to learning yeah. about the game. And, you know, you, you mentioned something in there about you're just a guy. Well, you said another phrase and it was about doing this work. And I think that's really, to me, the distinguishing factor is that, I mean, you read your stuff and it's instantly evident, not only by the detail, but by the clarity um, with which you present it, that you're one of the few that actually does put in. I mean, when I say few, it's a relative thing. There are a lot of guys out there working. But in terms of people whose work I, I can consistently get a hold of, there's there's nobody who's more detailed. And I, I just... I, I thank you on behalf of football fans. It's really, it's a joy to read that stuff. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it, it's, 
it's weird because you, when you get started doing this, I, the reason I got so detailed is that I knew that I didn't have a football background, you know? Uh, so I felt like that for me to the, uh, the first time I, I did the RSP, I used to just kind of write minor notes about what I saw and then I would rank the guys and do, and do a write up. And one of my, one of my friends ran, um, who lived in Jacksonville at the time, apparently had the same dental, um, dentist as Pete Prisco. <laughs> and, and he told, apparently he talked up my RSP to Pete Prisco and, and Pete Prisco said, yeah, I'd like to see it, send it, send it over. So I, this was back, I think in 2006, 2007, and I sent it over to him because my friend mentioned about it and, you know, Pete wrote me back and basically his email was, so do you watch it? You know, how, how many games do you watch? You know, and then he goes, well, if you don't watch all the games, then, you know, I'm not really that, you know, it was, it was something kind of just very quick and very Pete Prisco like in terms of, you know, how he is, he's just kind of very to the point about things. So he's a busy man. Yeah. He's a busy man. So, so, you know, it was just one of those deals that I remember, looking at it and thinking, you know, I need to do more detail. I need to, cause I, I didn't agree with his assessment with that, you know, in terms of how many games I needed to, to, that I needed to watch every game, you know, I always, you know, but to me it was more about getting a really strong sample size. But, you know, I remember thinking I need to show all my work. I need to do that as much as possible. And I'm now at this point where it's, you know, 15, you know, 13 years later, and I'm kind of at a point where, some of that details getting in the way with me being able to do what I think is going to be able to get more bang for the buck out of what I do and from, for the readers and what they read. So I'm actually at a point where instead of what I used to do, you know, I've been, I used to write down play by play what I saw uh, on, you know, every game that I watched of every player. And, you know, now it's at a point where I've kind of cut that back and probably for next year, I may do that for one game for, you know, every quarterback and then probably every four, maybe every six to eight games that I study for any other position, because it's gotten to the point that it used to just be a process for me to learn so that I could notice as much as possible. And, you know, most people don't read that stuff because it's just raw notes. I mean, if you do, you're, you're reading just like gibberish sometimes, but, um, you know, it was a good process now, but now it's, I'm at the point where I want to do more advanced charting. I want to do, you know, I want to study the game a little bit more in certain areas with, you know, from more strategic standpoints in terms of memorizing play concepts and, you know, and being able to talk on more of a whiteboarding level. Like if I were to, if I were to have an accidental meeting with a, a, with a head coach of an NFL team, I'd like them to look at me and go, did you play quarterback somewhere? Or did you play, you know, that's kind of where I want to be at on that level. And it's funny because like you said, the people who are real football people, they understand that if you see it with some level of clarity or you're doing the work, you know, oftentimes I'll tell people there's certain guys that we, we associate with and I'll just say, you know, I don't, I, I may not be able to tell, you know, diagram what a snag concept looks like or what certain things, you know, what certain things are, but because of the way that I had to learn the game and the way that I structured my learning process, it, 
it, it was coming at it from strictly a layperson's point of view, but with so much detail that you see how the patterns work. You see how you start to understand individual technique and how it fits into the broad spectrum, but you may not know what the titles are. And what ended up happening just by pure accident is you get people who are like, I love that you say that break things down in a way that just the average person can understand. And I'm thinking that's the only way I know how to do it. You know? right. You're not so busy trying to prove that you're part of the club that you forget yes. to convey the information. Yeah, it's it's really that I was trying to decipher the information in a way that I could understand it as someone who didn't understand the concept names and how all that worked. I'm actually learning that in reverse now as opposed to people who were like, OK, you know, I played football, so I understand, you know, this is an ISO versus an eagle defense. This is what these are and this is how that works. For me, it's like I'm a, I have a I've now I have a whiteboard on my wall in my office and I sit there I, for a while I was literally just taking books and diagramming the plays and looking that up. But before that happened, you know, what I was really doing is I was watching so much tape that I understood, okay, this is what needs this is what these types of plays are. This is a gap style play. This is a uh, zone type of play. I don't know exactly the name of what this play is, but I know that this is what the running back's supposed to do. And this is what the skills the running back should have to be able to do it really well. And, but that was through 12 years of diag, you know, of transcribing everything that I saw and then just trying to listen to whatever anyone would have to advise about those positions. You know, so you can learn it in a completely different way. And it's funny because, you know, when you have consultants of teams uh, or consultants of positions say, I, I like what you do, or I have my, I have my kids who are high school and college students playing the game. They're assigned to your Instagram account to like, see your analysis because you want, you get it you know, when it comes to breaking down the position, it just, it, it's thrilling, but it makes me laugh because again, you, you know, the people who know all the coach jargon and all the strategic jargon, I'm still, I'm still in my ABCs with that. Isn't that incredible? It, it's uh man, just, I'll just tell you that that response has elicited about 400 questions here on my notes page that we'll just have to have another <laughs> podcast episode for. <laughs> Sounds um, good. But, but I did want to ask you about a couple of things, you know, you mentioned in there that you had, that, you know, there's a fantasy football connection to the origin of this and at least for you. And there certainly was for me, uh, which is that fantasy drove me to study stats a little more, which drove me to study sort of the, you know, what begets the stats a little more. And I started watching games a little more, analytically and and I was fortunate enough to have had a best friend growing up who happened to play high level football and so I could sit in a room with him and watch film from time to time and so pure luck in some of that but it's interesting to me how much the fantasy component of that I mean I, based on all the different things you've worked on I got to assume that you would share my viewpoint that even to the extent that we get annoyed with certain cliches that come out of it or or um what's the word I'm looking for certain platitudes that come out of fantasy analysis. Um, there's just no way around what a huge driver it is into the interest of people actually studying the game. Yeah, there's no way. I mean, I, I have to give fantasy football and, and the, 
and the community all the all the thanks and credit in the world for being able to do what I do now because I mean I loved football growing up I just didn't happen to do anything other than play it as a you know as just a sport the way people played pickup basketball you know I you know I was that guy who probably bugged my friends to get off the first versions of video games when we were growing up and told them that we need to get outside and play play some ball because that's what I like to do I live to do that but it was so fantasy football for me was a it came about at a time in my you know my mid to late 20s where you know we were no longer playing you know every day because it started feeling like car accidents more often than it did you know as you grow to a certain age than it did when you're when you're when you're like 17 or 18 and someone flips you and you land on your back and you're okay that you know you know that that happens to you in your mid 20s and you haven't done it for a while you, you realize the next day that it's, you know, it's a completely different deal. And, and so, you know, having the chance to stay involved with watching pro football and having a reason to watch pro football on a level that you could really delve into it. And it wasn't just, it was social, but it was, it was far more analytical on that respect. And I, and I think that, you know, the community for me, it was, I was writing for a site called FF today back in the early two thousands. And, and it was just something that I was trying to find angles to write about things. And, and I, and I felt like that I just discovered that guys, you know, my first article was about Brian Westbrook. You know, I remember writing about Brandon Lloyd and Larry Fitzgerald and Frank Gore. And these were all guys who were coming out of school at the time. And and I was just touting. I, I just found myself always talking about what the narratives were about the players and then what wanting to find what the truth might be behind that narrative or looking at it from a different point of view. And that led me to doing deeper analysis with film. I used to spend a lot more time doing stats and I, I, I think I gained my first real following because I was doing a lot more statistical oriented work. Um, and, but it, but it, it ended up taking me to the film route instead. So, you know, when you look at the, the when you look at the fantasy level of things, I mean, all of the ways that people explore data or, you know, are examining, injuries or you know it's it used to be that fantasy football was some underground really geeky thing that you know that people just thought you're obsessed with something just kind of weird it might as well have been you know dungeons and dragons for for, (laughs) so true it's it's so accepted nowadays but it was like we were super nerds for a while yeah (laughs) absolutely i mean our our work crew we had a great time with it and it was fun but it was when you tell other people about it they did they looked at you like that not only did you play dungeons and dragons but you must have like dressed up in like period costumes while you were doing it waste of time sir yes Yes. exactly you know and it's like next thing you know you know within the span of 10 years we you know people who i knew looked at that like that was just crazy and silly and a waste of time we're suddenly having church leagues 
for fantasy football. And I knew that at that point it had become embraced by mainstream society because when you, you know, when you live in the South and people are having church leagues for fantasy football, you, you pretty much, you pretty much cross the line from underground <laughs> to mainstream. Yeah. True story. <laughs> true story. Yeah. It's such a different world. I, I, I can't really relate out here in beach going Southern California, but yeah, well, that's not true. I guess I can. We've got our, uh, we've got our share. The, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you before we dig into some of this other stuff I wanted to ask you just you mentioned your Browns fanhood and I I, I think we are of fairly similar vintage in that regard and and we have some kind of commonalities story-wise you mentioned your dad's Broncos fanhood somehow my brother ended up a Broncos fan and I say somehow I know exactly how he was on the Broncos as a flag football player when he was like six and saw <laughs> saw John Elway do something cool and decided he was a Broncos fan. We grew up in Southern California, mind you. There was no reason for him to be a Broncos fan. My dad grew up, you know, my dad grew up in Ohio. I'm a Browns fan by genetic defect. There's no excuse for my brother. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and of course now he's the, the the and I do okay, but he is the vastly more successful <laughs> sibling of the whole group. So it's really this whole Broncos thing. I swear to God, if we let. If we let John Elway trade ahead of us and take the quarterback, I'm going to kill myself. Um, <laughs> oh man! Yeah, well. I, I know you backed away for a little while, but and I'm I'm sort of in a fun little place right now where the Browns are really tempting me to come home to my thriving Los Angeles Rams. But how, how would you characterize your Browns fanhood these days? Yeah, it's funny because I mean, my first ten years were were in Cleveland, and my first game I saw. Don Shula's Miami Dolphins with Larry Zonka and Bob Greasy take on, you know, Brian Sipe and Reggie Rucker and Dave Logan and all those, the cardiac kids in, you know, municipal stadium in an overtime game where they beat the Dolphins in overtime. That was my first game and I was hooked, you know, and, and so, you know, I grew up a Browns fan and, and then we moved down to Atlanta, Georgia when I was 10 years old, but most of my family was in Cleveland. Both sides of my family were from Cleveland, Ohio. My father and my mother met in high school in Cleveland, Ohio. So, so of course, you know, he grew up during the Jimmy Brown era. And so he was of course uh, a Browns fan, but then, um, they, when they split up, my father moved out to Denver and he just liked, you know, he liked the area and he just embraced everything about Denver and became a Broncos fan, you know, well before John Elway came into town. And, and I, when I'd go visit him, we actually went to some Broncos games and, and I'd probably, I've probably been to more Broncos games than Browns games actually live. But what's funny is I don't think the Broncos have ever won a game that I've been to, including playoff games. Yeah, that's the. <laughs> I'm telling you. So it's like it's. I joke around with my I'm father. Definitely all the time about you that. To the draft. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it's it's great. But yeah, I after I was, you know, like all Browns fans, it was very hard to take all the all the playoff losses and the close calls, and then you know, seeing Marty Schottenheimer go and Ernest Biner leaving the team. And, and then, and then when, when Modell did what he did at that point, you know, it's like watching it and then seeing what happened in the success of the Ravens. It was like watching, you know, it's like watching someone steal your wife or spouse, you know, and then, and then, and then, win then the lottery. Like, and then win the lottery. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and then you're, and you're looking at that and thinking that team, you know, I still look at the Baltimore Ravens and I see the soul 
of the Cleveland Browns, the way that they play, the blueprint of that organization, just the attitude, the fact that the Steelers-Ravens rivalry actually has more meaning and more enmity between them um, because that was the Cleveland Browns. The fact that even Ozzie Newsom, uh, you know, probably my favorite Brown for so many years, runs the the, the well, draft room it hurts, is man. you know it hurts. it hurts right you know so it's a it's a two, it's an ache that you constantly kind of nod but it's it's one of those things that for me I think the way I had to handle it was I had to find a team to follow so I you know I became a Titans fan for a while because I just I thought about what teams do what what teams do I like and I was you know, I think about the Browns and it was four, three defense. It was a tough running game. It was a smart quarterback and, you know, man, tight man to man, you know, coverage and hard hitting defense. And I thought Tennessee Titans, you know, Steve the, McNair, the joke Eddie is, George, is of course, Jeff Fisher. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> but, you know, and and it, you that, know, that would be a recency was, bias kind of thing. Yeah. And then then this is the funny thing about that, though, is that, you know, when you are I I have this theory that when you're imprinted early on as a fan of a certain type of team and you follow that imprint and you recognize that imprint. The same things happen to those teams that uh, the teams that you like, because I was a Titans fan all the way through, you know, until Steve McNair was sent to the Ravens, um, which, again, was just like, you've got to be kidding me that of all the teams that he's going to wind up on is the one that I cannot like actually root for him to be on. And then, you know, they they lose a Super Bowl at the one yard line. Um, And then, you know, after that, that whole era, kind of the last players of of those late nineties, early two thousands teams were cycled out. I, I became a, I was a Marshawn Lynch fan, um, from his days at Cal. And I, and when he got traded to the, um, when he got traded to the Seattle Seahawks, I looked at the makeup of that team and thought, okay, good running game. Pete Carroll's got this four, three defense going on. looks like there's starting to build some, you know, a strong defense here. And I, they started to appeal to me. Russell Wilson was kind of the last kind of piece of that puzzle that made me a Seahawks fan. And of course I lost that super bowl inside the five yard line. Mm. You know, they did win one, but I got to tell you, it doesn't, it, it kind of actually makes me laugh because I think none of that even compares to like those three championship games. How in, could it, you know, yeah. with Denver. How could and it? so, yeah. so you look back on that and I, what that means is that I'm not really, I realize now growing up, you know, at this age now that I'm nowhere near the intensity of fan that I was when I was a Browns fan. And I probably never will be. Um, and while and with Cleveland, it's more of a I have this mixed this ambivalent feeling like I really want to see them do well. I'm always going to I always enjoy watching them. I don't feel as connected to them as I once did. And and I fear that I'm going to be like this bandwagon fan if anything ever takes off and goes great. And I just don't want to be that guy because I know what it means to be a loyal fan. And I feel like that when I made that decision not to be that um, anymore, that I just can't ever go back to it. Well, I hereby absolve all such sins. (laughs) You are welcome back anytime, my friend. Well, I I appreciate it, Father Bruce. Though I may not be here all that long myself. So, (laughs) you know, we'll see how April goes. Um, 
I got one for you. Here's a good one for a Browns fan of my vintage. Which of those three AFC title game teams was most or was best situated to win that Super Bowl? Which one of them do you think, damn it, that was the one that should have won the Super Bowl? Oh, wow. You know, I think I, I, I think the first one was pretty darn good. I think that they were in a great position. But I would also say this: the second one, you know, I think about that second game more than anything Me because too. I was a huge Ernest Biner fan. And that second one, the way they played in the second half of that game in Denver, I just thought, yeah, no one's going to stop this team if they win this game. There's no way. They this team was so resilient. Yeah. Damn so it. resilient. <laughs> I agree with you. That's the one. In, 80, in 89, it was like, all right, well, I actually think that Niners team might be the greatest all-around team I ever saw. So whatever. But right. those first two. Oof. Yeah. yeah, watching John Elway against, like, Washington, you know, and getting yeah. just bombed out by Doug Williams, and you're just thinking, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> this uh, would have ended differently. It would have ended differently. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, you can't win them all, or any of them, apparently. Um, <laughs> and be- before we dig into the weapons in this draft, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you um, sort of a, a bigger, silly, philosophical question. And I, I won't remember every detail of it, but I know you've got some history in the operations field. You have thoughts um, with which I literally invariably agree. Whenever you're into a, a discussion about here's how things can be improved um, in terms of process or in terms of organizational behavior, I, you and I are always on a wavelength where I'm like, okay, this guy is speaking a language I understand. And look, not everybody's going to be into this stuff. I don't honestly care. To me, this is the centerpiece of the discussion about why the Browns suck. And so that's why I want to ask you about it. And so to the extent we want to be specific, I've seen you tweet a number of things about, you know, the evaluation process. But I wonder if you might, while sharing a couple of things you've learned over the years, sort of assess the Browns through the prism of process and organizational behavior. Yeah, because, I mean, back in the day when I was – when I first got into all of this, I was an operations director, um, used to be a branch manager for a company where, you know, a lot of my experience came with, you know, I had, I had to do a lot of recruiting and hiring of entry level employees. I had to do, you know, I had to promote some of these people from, from those positions into, you know, frontline supervisory roles and then frontline management roles had to do a lot of initial training with people and follow up and had to create structures, management structures that they could follow and then get trained to be able to teach other people how to do that work. And so there was a quality element and a training and development element. There was a client services element that I had to learn. Um, and then there was also just the operational you know, data and getting the job done and making sure that we were producing for our clients. And, and this was work that I did for about 15 years. And I grew up in it in a manner of as a a young worker who was working on, you know, starting on the, from the ground up just as a part-time college student doing this work. And it just turned into a full-time career and continued to grow to the point that it was literally a, you know, it was literally a, became more of a corporate career for me at that point. So you learn a lot in those experiences and, you know, it it just became apparent that as you start reading about different areas and different arenas that sometimes, 
you you start to separate what's you know real from what's BS, and and I, as I was doing, as you start studying the game, and then also you have these, you, you make the connections between what your your life is like, and then what you're seeing, you know, play out in front of you, where the media says one thing, the the people who the media are interviewing are telling them something. And then also having a journalist back, you know, some journalism background before I got into this career, you kind of also see it from that angle of how people answer questions. And and then from the football angle, and a lot of things just didn't add up the way people said it, they were trying to make it sound like it was. And and so, you know, when you, you know, you look at the Browns in that in that realm there's a number of things that are going on here and a lot of this was kind of confirmed to me through you know some scouts and some consultants with the league who've been scouts that I met along the way who had you know contacted me in around 2011 and said I've been buying the RSP since 2007 and I'm not saying your scouting is on this level I mean I think you do a good job and I and I buy it but your your process management of scouting is light years ahead of the NFL. That was told to me in 2011, and I just laughed and we wow. struck up these conversations. Uh, not that I'm surprised, but that's it's amazing to hear such a stark assessment. Yes, yes, and this is someone that I was, you know, was probably getting out of what they're doing, but I know that they can probably call BS on a number of different arenas that are specialties now that people get paid to do in media about football and they have expertise in all of these areas. They're very, they're very rare in type of, you know, specialists in what they do um, because they have cross platform training and, you know, we talk about different things and, and one of the things that we talk about, he goes, one of the things, the reason that I bought your book in addition to the, the process that intrigued me and, and what your takes were because I thought that the process was good. And he said, is that he said, you, he said, I had never met anyone who saw what goes on in the NFL for real, who had never been in it and saw it so clearly in a way that like the media does not. And, and it was just validation because half the time, you know, you're talking about going, I think this is what's going right, on. Right. If I were guessing, this is what's probably happening. And you sound like a conspiracy theorist. You know, I mean, that's what half of us. We all sound like conspiracy theorists because you're being intellectually honest. That's really all yes. that is. Yes. And so then what ends up happening is when someone in the league tells you, oh, no, you're seeing it clearer than most media insiders are seeing it. You're just going, yeah, okay. And, and then part of you thinks, is this someone trolling me who really is, you know, not the person they say they are? And then you end up meeting them down the line, you know, at the senior bowl. And, no, it's you just know, confirmation that, that you are not losing your mind. That's what exactly. It is. Yeah, that's exactly it. So when you look at Cleveland, it's very clear after these types of experiences and meeting the type of people that I've gotten to meet through doing my work, that what happens here is that, you know, you have it starts with the owner. And it's always going to start with the owner because Amen. if you've ever, you've ever worked any type of job where you are a middle manager or a frontline, you know, manager of supervisor of some sort, you understand that in your life that 
at work that you're given certain marching orders and that's what you're supposed to do and you're just supposed to care about your little patch of land and you want to make sure that of course you do a good job and you want everything to go well because you 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 want your company to do well because you want to do well, you know, and, but what ends up happening sometimes is you may be given an ambitious project or something that's a little more long-term to do and you work on it and you work on, you get your team to work on it and you work on it together. Maybe you have to take some extra time outside of your daily work to get it done. And then at the end of, you know, six months of doing that, you present the information to, you know, the CEO of the company or to the C-suite, you know, that's, that's going to be, you know, taking that information and doing something about it. And you go up there and it's, you know, it's a trip. Maybe you have to take a trip to your corporate office to go do that. And it's, you know, time out of your week and you're, and you're there and it seems to be like a, a special event in a sort that you're doing this. And then you don't hear anything about it for like two months later. And then you come to find out that the CEO had lunch with like their best buddy and decided to like do a complete 180 of, of, in terms of decisions and totally disregard the thing that they that they asked you know their staff this to do. This sounds familiar. Yeah, right? You know, so it's you know when you look at that you see that there's this mentality of leadership, especially guys who maybe have inherited their company as opposed to and, – and how they made their money was through inheriting the work of others and maybe not have really had that level of real management experience, real leadership experience. They just had the bully pulpit of having the money and the power and they could do what they wanted to do. Um, but they really didn't have a level of expertise with it. But everyone gets to We're treat so them. screwed. Yes. <laughs> and we are. I mean, you look at Haslam and Haslam is Haslam is that guy. So here's Haslam. You know, you wonder why we run through quarterbacks like it's nothing. And you see, you see that okay. So we hired the analytics guys because that seemed like to them. First, you go well is maybe that's a good decision. Maybe that's what they want to do. Maybe they're going to be innovative. That's great. But if they, if the owner doesn't have the guts to stand up to his own coaching staff or to his own, you know, CEO and say, look, you better get along with these guys and play ball, or I'm getting rid of you. I'm getting rid of you people and you're going to have to change. In fact, not only are you going to have to change, but you're going to have to learn this stuff. You're going to have to become conversant in it for real. And I'm going to hold you accountable to it on a level that we're going to do something structured about it. We're going to make sure that this is a long-term thing. And I don't care what kind of you know soap opera BS or dysfunctional stuff that you try to pull to point the finger at somebody else – when it comes to things not going well or the way that you wanted, you're not going to get away with that. We're going to we're going to learn how to work together like mature adults and get this done. And if you can't, you can leave, you know, but that's not what happened. What happened is what typically happens with a lot of these NFL owners and CEOs at companies and C-suite type of members is that they don't really understand how to manage that area. They may have one little specialization, but they – what happens is that the threat of them not looking like that they're doing a good job or that the public doesn't like what they're doing or it's a perception type of issue, instead of staying the course and doing what you 
originally planned to do and going taking the bumps and learning from it and actually making mistakes because that's how you learn making the mistakes and going okay we screwed up i always i wrote an article years ago saying what my expansion franchise would look like and i always said i'd take over the cleveland browns and if they would allow me to make the special provision i would be I would set it up like the Green Bay Packers so that the city owned the team when I was done and that I was going to have a 15-year period. And I I told everybody up front, I said, we're going to suck. We're going to suck worse than you can ever imagine, and you're going to hang my image in effigy probably for the first five to seven years that I own this team. But if I do what I believe is the right way to manage an organization – and we learn through that process and we do things where we actually make the effort. We don't listen to other owners tell us what they do because you know they're in a revenue-sharing system that has no outside competition. And so they don't have they're, – they're basically like a mom-and-pop company that grew up together and all the frontline employees who started out now suddenly have the – have you know, big job – you know, have the big jobs and those that came in – you know, we're just people who bought in because, you know, daddy, you know, invented the, the assembly line or, you know, or the truck, they, stop. They, the truck stop or something <laughs> of that nature. Exactly. And now they can just buy into it and just play around with their play money and, and still make tons of money, even if they fail miserably with their product because they get revenue sharing and then they can still get the, you know, the country to subsidize their stadiums, you know, get the government, to sub- the, the public to subsidize their stadiums that, you know, turn out to be modern day Roman coliseums, you know? So with that type of a setup, what kind of incentive is there to actually, you, you know, you're not being threatened about what type of players you get and how good you are, or how good you aren't. Um, you know, there's no incentive there. And so there's not a lot of work that's being done on that level. And you can still kind of hide behind the, the PR of that you're advanced and that you are the top product at this, you know, in football and that you guys know what you're doing and you keep it at this whole veiled level of secrecy to your benefit so that they don't see what's really going on behind the scenes. And so when you look at all of that, and you and I, I just say, you know, I would tell people that it would suck, but we're going to learn. We're going to do things differently. And, you know, you sound a lot like is, Paul DePodesta in that. I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know if you ever saw the quote, but there's the quote that DePodesta has that is what he says to every owner who wants to hire him. And it's all about it's going to be a roller coaster. And the first part of that roller coaster is going to suck. We're going to yes. be on this downward dive. You're going to want to pull out of it way before it is prudent to do so. And the yes. only ones of you that will make a success of this are those of you that have the stomach to get through the drop. And that's right. To me, clearly Haslam has not exhibited that stomach. No. And my only hope at this juncture is that a he runs into one like David Eckstein hitting a grand slam in the World Series, or b he. You know, look, they've got enough capital that it could get lucky and fun for a while. But the hope is that eventually this guy is embarrassed enough by his own record that he gives the job to somebody else. 
Yeah, just divest himself of it because it it would be great if he did because it's obviously this is this is playtime for him even if he doesn't think it is and he right. would sit there you know if he heard me say that and even Dane care who the heck I was which he wouldn't because I'm you know but if if he cared that someone said that and had a pulpit to to have that heard and he'd say well what do they know they, they <laughs> at know least 241 people are going to hear this matt so <laughs> yeah yeah but what do they you know but you know what i'm saying they'd be like what do they know about x y and z and i'd just say well i, I know enough about people like you because i've worked with people like you which is that you don't have the wherewithal to stick with what you do and actually learn and look long term because you're more worried about you know what your business partners who you're trying to sell luxury boxes to who don't know anything about football what they're saying as opposed to what your gm's saying what your head of football operations is saying what your coaches are saying whether they're all can get on the same page and whether you can be the leader involved in that or you're just more invo- you're more caring about just being up in your luxury box and having the tv camera on you when things go well you know because when it comes down to it at the end of the day you may play boss but you don't know how to be one and that's something that you know i always joke that if you do it right by the end of that they may want to hang you in effigy you know but if you if you actually see the course through they're probably going to want to create a statue of you by the time it's over because you and when you look at the Browns, that's the problem is that they went to this whole, you know, they had Sashi Brown, obviously they, they accomplished a lot of what they wanted to do in terms of the beginnings of that process. They, they were able to generate the most amount of draft capital that you, that we've ever seen in the modern era. And we're standing on that because of what Sashi Brown did. Now I'm not an analytics guy, you know, I'm, in terms of like, you know, analytics is the greatest thing ever. I think it's great and it, and it's a helpful tool, but it's not so much my take to, you know, just to try and prop up the analytics area. It's just more that look what the re- results were. The results were that. Right. And, you, and But meanwhile, while you got all that capital and you got a quarterback last year, regardless of what you think Deshaun Kaiser how good he was last year. The fact of the matter is, is that you treated your quarterback the way that you treat your organization, which is that Mm. you bought, you got some, you got something good enough that to grow with, and you have this raw material and he's supposed to be what your operations manager of your, of your team. He's supposed to be the guy that's going to work with the, with the front level employees and get them coordinated and do what needs to be done to, to actually deliver your product. But you're not going to train them. You, you think that training is just meeting rooms with scheme. You think that, you know, he doesn't need any mentorship with, from an experienced manager in that capacity. He doesn't even have to be great. He could have been Josh McCown because Josh McCown's been enough meeting rooms with the likes of Kurt Warner, with the likes of a number of veteran quarterbacks throughout the years and different teams that he can be helpful in a young guy in terms of teaching them how to work smart 
how to prepare, what types of things he should and shouldn't be prioritizing during his week, you know, get, showing him the ropes to how to do that. Because I don't care how talented you are when you're in your young, early 20s and never had a professional job before having someone teach you. The how to work and how not to work is essential. And he was the only quarterback that I can think of in recent memory who didn't have uh, another player at his position mentoring him or at least giving him advice who had more than two to three years experience on the team. And the fact that they he didn't have that kind of support and then he's being thrown under the bus by a coach who really didn't understand how to develop quarterbacks if he if what he's going to do is bench the guy and not even tell him that he's no longer the future or he's or that he doesn't know how he feels or bring it up in the media and and do it in a way where you're just kind of emotionally whiplashing this guy and his confidence early on where before you were praising him like he was the next coming, you know, after the preseason, which shows you that you don't have a, a, a coach who understands how to develop. The last coach I remember who knew how to develop a quarterback over and over and over again was actually a former Cleveland Browns coach, and that was Marty Schottenheimer. And he, Marty Drew Brees credits Marty Schottenheimer for his development. He's I've seen it on the – you know, I've seen it on an NFL life where he talks about, look, yep. when I, you know, when I was with the chargers, they shot Marty would bench me and he, he benched me multiple times. And, but how he did it, I always appreciated because that's what I learned. He would literally say to me, look, you screwed up here. And I think the game's getting away from you. And I think that you need to sit down and just kind of take a few deep breaths and get away, get your mind back in the game and, and like calm down, but you're still my guy. You are the future of what we're doing here. And if we get back into this game, I'm putting you back in to win it because I trust you, but you just need to sit back and like get away. And from I'm the just game not going to sit here and totally remove myself from the process as the head coach and let you get the crap beaten out of you for 40 minutes. Yes. And that's, and that's what's important is that you've, when you're training people and they, and quarterback is not just being big and strong armed and remembering what plays to call, not, you know, that's the, that's the physical and intellectual part of the job. But if you look at anyone who's a good leader or a good manager, it's not just because they know the terminology of the job or they got a degree or that they, you know, they understand certain processes. It's that they can look at their team and know who's going to be able to give them the best effort today, who needs a little bit of a push, mm. who's someone that they're going to, they could probably train to do a little bit more and give them more responsibility and also be able to understand how to manage upward and go to their boss and say, okay, this is what we need from you. This is what's going on and how to frame it in a way to get what they need, what his employees are going to need. And be able to assess a situation correctly to go, what you said we need to do, this ain't going to work. It's not going to, and I'm not telling you this because I'm trying to be negative. I'm telling you this because here's what we're seeing. Here's what's happening. Here's hard evidence. Here's my suggestion for what we should do. 
And so when you look at a good quarterback, he has to learn all those things. He has to learn when to bring those things up, how to bring those things up. And if he came from a Notre Dame environment where his coach threw him under the bus, you know, when he didn't do very well, he obviously doesn't know that heading into Cleveland, how to be able to handle that and be mature and, and how to work with at it. 20 with, years old, at, by the way. at 20 years old, by the way, which we expect these quarterbacks to act like they're 50 right away because it's you so know, ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's horrific. You know, so if John Elway or Terry Bradshaw were ever in. You know, we're in this era. Brett Favre. Brett Favre, yeah. Don't even get me started about Brett Favre and Manziel because the week that Manziel – the week that Manziel was getting, you know, excoriated for his behavior was the same week that CBS was running all these stories about how Brett Favre at the bar, Brett Favre tending the bar, Brett Favre hungover, you know, Brett, you know, all these things that Brett Favre was missing practice, you know, showing all the, not knowing a nickel defense, you know, all these different things you're hearing. And I'm going the same things. I mean, for different, very different reasons. And I'm glad for Manziel that, you know, that he's real, you know, he's been diagnosed and that he's trying to get his life back together and trying to, you know, work his way back into the game. I wish him luck with that. But, you know, at that time, it was just so funny to see how, you know, ESPN was basically talking about the, you know, how horrible Johnny Manziel was and how unprofessional he was and how this is just not what quarterbacks do. And then CBS was on the same at the same week was just celebrating the 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 wild and woolly antics of Brett Favre, (laughs) which were essentially the same things. So, yeah, it's a it's a situation, Ryan, where you look at this in total and you realize that there's the leadership has to start at the top, because if you if you don't have it at the top, then it doesn't roll downward because you're not, you know, you can bring in an analytics guy and it's not going to get supported. You could bring in an old school football. He doesn't guy, know what he it's wants. Not gonna, he, yes. he wants to have every cake and eat, eat a piece of all of them. Yeah. He just, he just wants it to be, he just wants it to be successful and he doesn't know how to do it. Right. And, he wants you know, his name on the Super Bowl. That's what he yes. wants. And in contrast, you know, art blank. Are, you know, mm. whatever we want to say mm. about, you know, the Atlanta Falcons and, and what happened with them the past couple of years, Arthur Blank came down and I, I remember seeing him because I worked at the you, University you of Georgia. You craft to make this same business point, school. I'm sure. I'm sure that too. But, you know, Arthur Blank was a manager. Arthur right. Blank started Home Depot and whatever you think about Home Depot now, now that, you know, that, that they are no longer were a part of it. But when they were... I mean, they had they had entry level employees who were making great salaries because they were making money hand over fist and were doing so well. And the quality and the raving fans that they had uh, in terms of customers, you know, these were people who were that the employees were asking Robert Blank and and his partner to walk them down the aisle when they were getting right. married, you know, I mean, because that's how successful this was. So when blank took over the Falcons, this is a perfect example. He tells this story when I was at, at the business school at university of Georgia, writing, writing a magazine features there. And he told a story to his student, to the students there about how, when he took over the Falcons, their training camp used to be in at Furman, South Carolina. And that's where the the old regime 
of owners had the, the training camp. So he goes there for that summer, the kickoff training camp, and he gets the tour from some firm and officials. And they show him around, and they say, this is where you're going to be staying. This is the president's house. And he's like, oh, well, that's really nice, but that's not where I planned on staying. Well, no, you're going to – where did you plan on staying? He goes, oh, I want to stay with the players. I want to get to know what they're doing and, and understand kind of the process and what's, what's going on. And they go, no, nah, you're not going to be comfortable there, Mr. Blank. I really think that you should stay here at the president's house. That's where the last owner stayed and they loved it. And it was great. He goes, no, you don't understand. I'm not here for a vacation. I'm here for work. Um, and I want to find out what's going on. So I need you right now to end this tour and take me over to the dorms where they're staying. So he went to the dorms and he saw players after practice. The, the the dorm rooms had mattresses that were too small for the players to actually sleep on on the box springs. They had to take two mattresses off and put them on the floor so that they could actually sleep on the beds. The <laughs> the towels that they had were like might as well have been, you know, washcloths or paper towels in terms of thickness and in size to cover up these 300 pound guys trying to take a shower after practice. And, you know, let's not even talk about whether the, the air conditioning units work. You've been in dorm rooms. So you know how that works. So so, you know, that was the last summer they ever had a training camp at Flowery Branch. But it, as an owner, the you know, all it takes is to understand that you've got to check out your process and get intimately involved with it on at least enough of a lever to have, level to have a working knowledge of what's going on and ask questions and understand the right questions. And Arthur Blank obviously knew how to do that as someone who built the Home Depot franchise. You know, a guy like Haslam, who inherited what he did, apparently, you know, he would be of the mentality that he probably when they told him, you're going to be much more comfortable here, he goes, oh, and I bet you're right. Let's go ahead and over and have a drink. You know, do you have any cigars? You know, um, what kind of things do you have on the menu that, that do you have a cook for me? <laughs> I mean, those are the types of things that would probably be like maybe not asked so you know, in such a gauche sort of way, gauche sort of way, but probably what would happen in comparison to actually going, I care about my employees and I want, because I want to get the best out of them. And let me make sure that I'm not dropping the ball by having them here at this, at this school, mm. you know, uh, one state away. You know, what phrase always comes to mind for me with Haslam is born on third thinks he got a triple. <laughs> that's great that is great that's stolen from Pearl, from Eddie Vedder to be specific um, <laughs> he was speaking about someone else but we'll leave politics out of this um, you know there are any number of portions of this conversation that have brought me to the edge of football sexual gratification but I wanted to let's get uh, if we could I'd love to actually get the audience to um, the stuff for which I ostensibly asked you on here to talk about the the, sure. the various weapons in this draft class. Um, let's start with sort of let's let's back it into the quarterbacks. Let's start with the tight ends because it seems to be a class where we're not getting almost any focus on that position. Um, and I'll be real straight with you on none of these positions am I studied up. I've now seen. I feel like I've seen enough of the top handful of quarterbacks. I've seen a number of the running backs. I've seen probably three or four of the wide receivers in some depth. That's about it. Whereas usually I would have come into this with, I've seen everybody. Let's talk about it. Um, what, what have you seen of the tight end class? Who sticks out to you? Anybody that you, you like particularly for the Browns? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I mean, I'm still a Njoku fan and I still think that he's someone that you're, you're going to 
that you're going to get some good value out of down the line here. But you know, the, the guys that stick out, I mean, I look at a guy like Mark Andrews at that six, five, two fifty ish range, you know, probably can get up to the two sixty range if he hadn't already at the combine. Um, you know, I just, I'm just waiting for the data, you know, to, to, to look, I just kind of do the data at that point. I don't really watch the combine. I'm, I'm just watching a lot of tape and I get the information, but, um, I haven't looked at that for the tight ends yet, but with Andrews just on tape, you know, he's fluid. He understands how to get open in zones. He really understands how to transition into the open field as a runner. He's got good speed. And I think that he has potential to develop into a blocker. I think that's probably one of the hardest things for tight end play, you know, trans transition from college to the pro game is not so much the receiving, but the blocking. And I think Andrews has the potential to develop into a pretty good blocker. And he does a good job of being able to, to, to really release from the line of scrimmage in a variety of ways where it looks like he's going to block and then be able to get open in the red zone. And I think that working with a quarterback like Baker Mayfield, who, you know, he's had to get used to being able to run scramble drills and, but at the same time also be a part of quick hitting plays that he's gotten, he's gotten kind of both extremes of on the job wide receiver, you know, of receiver training in terms of quick hitting plays as well as um, slow developing off script plays. And that, and when you have a player who's good on that level, that's, in, that's something that's notable. Mike Jacecki. I mean, all I'm hearing about is boy, was how, his name everywhere all of a sudden during the call, right? Right. I mean, that the, you know, I've, I've got another set of games to final, finally watch with these guys. And Jacecki was certainly in my top five, um, before the, before the combine, but when he blew the doors off of the 40 yard dash and the, and his, you know, vertical three cone and 20 shuttle, you know, it's forcing everyone to take a second look at him because you realize that he was probably hidden a bit by the way he was used. And you, and we saw kind of a, a little bit of a, of a warning bell about that when he was at the senior bowl, because he was very fluid as a receiver. And, and I think that if people were knew that he was going to do what he did athletically, he would have been one of the, the guys that everyone was waiting on bated breath to see, take a rep, like every play. Cause that's mm. how people are at the senior bowl with, you know, players that they, that they're looking forward to seeing. And, and then they're going to write breathlessly about them whenever they, you know, they sneeze, you know, I mean, Nick Vanette was a good example of that where I remember the first couple of days, people were all excited about Nick Vanette, the Ohio state tight end and how he was the next Gronkowski and, and you're watching him and I'm sitting here thinking the first day, okay, every, you know, he looks, he looks really smooth and athletic and he's catching every ball in sight but no one's pressing him. No one's getting contact. No one's like pushing him around. And then like the next three days, every time he was, you know, manned up and bodied up, he dropped the ball. But, you know, but when he was playing against air or off coverage, he looked like the guy that everyone was writing breathlessly about. So Jacecki was a guy that no one had expectations for. And you see him high pointing the ball, working in the in the in the red area and being able to, you know, get open and and be able to be very quick and smooth about everything. And then you start to realize that, you know, maybe Trace McSorley with the running around that he does and the way that he has to kind of go off scripted that you're not getting the chance to see Jacecki do some of those things that a precision passer would 
be able to highlight out of his game. And I think that that's, that's a guy that's really fascinating to me is we're going to have to watch a lot more of his tape to kind of find those examples. Um, so he's interesting to me. I think that, you know, Hayden Hurst is kind of that Hunter Henry type of player. Um, in, in many regards, he's smooth. He may not be unbelievably fast. I haven't looked at the combine times yet, so I might be off with that. Um, if they're, if the Browns are looking for like a blocker, um, kind of a guy with an attitude. He's not really big at 245, at least before the combine, but Ryan Izzo out of FSU is kind of, we'll use a cross sports reference. He's kind of that Bill Lambeer like kind of guy. In, he's, in. he's an instigator. In. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's got, yeah. He's a, he's an instigator. I watched him against Southern Miss and he was just, he was always the last one to finish contact he was pushing people after the play. They he started. He was getting under their skin within like the first two series. Um, but he could block, and he had pretty good burst, and he could catch the ball reasonably well. He was slow. I mean, you're not going to see him stretch the field. He's not even like Heath Miller fast. He's you know, but he's a guy that probably could be a decent blocker for you. Um, you know, so I mean, I think guys like that were interesting, but most of the guys that really caught my eye were more H back types as opposed to like all around tight ends. And the only examples of the all around guys would probably be Jacecki and Andrews who would head up that list. Yeah, and that's worth noting. Like, like you say, obviously Njoku's not going anywhere. He's he at least better be a big part of the offensive plan. Right. It's it's sort of hard to know totally what to think given the changes. Um, about DeValve, but when healthy and on the field, he's certainly shown at least some ability to make some plays. I think I think really the thing that we're all kind of wondering is, is there a guy, whether whether Njoku can be or whether they need to look elsewhere for sort of the, the all-around guy who can be a true inline tight end at times and whatnot. I, I tend to think Njoku can do it, but there's no harm in having a couple of them. So it'll be interesting to see whether that position gets any any real traction. Um, yeah. during this draft, it's a hard and it's a hard transition for tight ends. I think it's the second oh, yeah. hardest skill position. To got to know everything, to. right? You got to know yeah. the offensive line stuff. You got to know the receiving stuff. You got to know everything. Yeah, and I mean that's a you know you're thinking along the lines like a quarterback when it comes to reading the when it comes to reading zones and being on the same page with adjustments. Right. And but at the same time, yeah, now you're. To me, now you, you maybe you were the receiving guy or you were a good hotshot blocker in college, but now you've actually you've got to learn so many intricacies of being able to get leverage and maintain leverage as a blocker. That's a that's like a whole rabbit hole of information that these guys have to right. get because if Travis Kelsey, who was such a good prospect, took it took him a couple of years to really fully get it. You know, and he may be the best tight end in the league who who is healthy on a on a regular basis. Yeah, that's a, an important qualifier. Um, the wide receivers, 2018. I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking it's a really interesting class for a lot of reasons, but it, it feels like it's it's a class where there's a good amount of depth. I mean, th- there are lists. W- look, if I can find a a top five wide receiver list that doesn't include DJ Moore. To me, that means it's a pretty deep class. Um, <laughs> and, but there doesn't seem to be anybody in that super upper tier kind of prospect position, a, a Julio Jones and AJ Green, who 
ironically enough, came out in that same draft. But I, I don't know if there's anybody quite in that upper echelon wide receiver group, but it sure seems like there are a lot of guys that you could lump into a group of really productive NFL receivers. And I don't know how you start sort of parsing them. There are guys that I like for different reasons. I love what I saw from James Washington in general, but but he's also kind of a one-trick pony. I think Calvin Ridley probably has a lot more to his game than was really permitted to be exhibited at Alabama. I know I like DJ Moore. I know I think Christian Kirk is a freak show athlete. Uh, I keep hearing great things about Cortland Sutton. It's hard for me to watch him and not think, I have no idea what to think about this guy because of the offense he played in and the quarterbacks he played with. Deion Kane's out there. Equinemius saved Brad. a lot of guys with, with some production and some talent. How do you sort it all out? Yeah, and it's it's one of those deals where you literally can go – I think you could probably go from w- how you grade your first-ranked player to probably your 13th or 14th-ranked player. Yeah. And if you graded it different – if you graded one thing differently, you could see them flip-flop. It's literally that tight. And it's a tough class because of that because, it you know, wide receiver – Anyway, you know, as the scout used to tell me, wide receiver usually has the highest variations of grades um, of any position when it comes to scouting. It's got the greatest variation because a lot of it's about how they fit with the scheme, what type of wide receiver they need. You know, do they need a guy who's more of a flanker? Do they need a split end? Do they need a slot receiver? Do they need a guy who can do a little bit of everything? Um, You know, is blocking more important to them on a certain level? Do they need someone who can deliver in the red zone and they want someone who's really a fade route specialist in, in addition to whatever else he offers in his game? And I think that when you look at this, this, I, I try and study players based on who gives you the highest quality of play over the widest course of possibilities. And that's because that's what I'm grading for. I'm not grading for a team. So as a result, sometimes the guys that I like tend to be more every, you know, kind of the every man kind of receiver as opposed to the, the specialist, uh, you know, a Kelvin Benjamin was never going to grade high for me. Even if you, even if, whether you liked him or not, he was never going to grade high for me because he was going to be such a specialist in what he did um, that you know he's not a great route runner. He's 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 not extremely fast. He doesn't get great separation against press coverage. You, you know, I, so you look at the guys you know in this class, and right now you know I love DJ Moore. I like Anthony Miller. These are guys who I think that can give you that slot receiver, um, you know, production, but they can also play outside when called upon. You know, Moore gets compared a lot to to Golden Tate, and I I think that there's a reasonable comparison there. Though I think Moore may be able to eventually do more as a boundary receiver. Um, and be and do a little more with fade routes as a possibility. And he's just stronger. He's a stronger player with even more burst. Anthony Miller to me reminds me of Randall Cobb. Um, but he oh may my actually. God. I can't believe I didn't mention Anthony Miller. He's my favorite one in the class. I don't know if he's the best one in the class, but he, you know, UCLA. I'm a UCLA guy, and he absolutely tore us to shreds. And so I yeah. ended up watching every game he had. And I, the guy. I, when I watch him play, the guy I see is Anquan Bolden. Strong, fearless, will hit you on his own. 
maybe not early Anquan Bolden in terms of the ability to get deep over the top on people. I think I think sometimes that bit of Q's game gets forgotten. But aside from that, the 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 professional receiver Anquan Bolden, that's the guy I'm looking at. Yeah, and I get it. And I think that, you know, he's that guy that wherever you have I I'm to me, it makes me laugh because I think wherever he winds up in my rankings, I don't really care because I just like him and I know yeah, that he's exactly. going to be a player, exactly. you know, but he is, he is, he's, he's a favorite for sure. And I think that, you know, he does, he, I remember I liked Randall Cobb a lot because I did see him make contested catches at Kentucky. There weren't many of them, but he flashed it. Um, and, but Anthony Miller does it a lot more often. And so that's a, that's a real positive with him. I like James Washington. You know, I hear a lot about how much of a, a specialist he is and how he maybe maybe he's more Tory Smith. But, you know, I, I'll be spot checking a little bit more, but he'll be high up in my rankings because I, I, I just watched him get a lot of separation on defenders on a regular basis at the senior bowl. He was he had people had a tough time covering him mm-hmm. and it wasn't just on deep routes. It was just him at will Good. being able to separate in a number of different ways. So I think that he's, he has more to his game than I think that, you know, than maybe what people have seen based on what the offense was. Mm-hmm. I like Dante Pettis. I know a lot oh, yeah. of people who, who, who aren't. I, I'm a Gary Pettis enthusiast. So Dante See? is right in my DNA wheelhouse for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, to me, Dante Pettis is in my DNA wheelhouse from a, an evaluation standpoint because he reminds me of some of my favorite wide receivers in the game right now, including um, Marvin Jones. Mm. When I look at Marvin Jones, I always saw he was a favorite of mine from back at Cal, and I thought that he he was a storyteller. He was fluid. He was someone that could he to me. I don't care if a receiver's big. I care if he's flexible and he has great hand-eye coordination and he can and, and he, he can wants the ball. Yes, and he can tell a story. You know, when you look at wide receivers, I mean, no one remembers this guy, and those that do usually only remember the bad stuff about him. But Garrett Dante Pettis is in this, and Marvin Jones are in the same family as Brandon Lloyd. And Brandon Lloyd, when you look at if you I I. If you are not just completely biased about the guy you like, if you were to, if we were able to like just black out their uniforms and show just highlight tape of some of the greatest catches in in the NFL, I guarantee you that three to four of the top twenty and probably of the top ten would be Brandon Lloyd's catches. I have people no objections to this out. argument whatsoever. I totally agree. Brandon Lloyd yeah. made some of the most ridiculous catches and had stretches of play where he was completely unstoppable. Completely yeah. unstoppable. Yeah, and he ran a four seven forty. So, and now he claimed he had the flu, but he was just he was quick. He was fluid and he had matrix like matrix like flexibility. He literally I mean, his catches, you play them in super slow motion. And there are catches that if if there are receivers that if they had just one of his catches, they'd go, I'm done. I'm happy. I can retire now. You know, and it's and Pettis has that kind of potential. He has that kind of ball skill and and I know people worry about him holding up at 61188 but come on I mean seriously this is you know we don't ask that about Antonio Brown we didn't ask that about 
you know, Brandon Lloyd back in the day or Donald Driver or Marvin Jones, you know, and and I think that his ability after the catch, I mean, he broke Deshaun Jackson's um, kick return record for touchdowns, career kick. This guy, I mean, you know, we talk about Christian Kirk and we talk about DJ Moore. What about Dante Pettis? And he's a good route runner. Dante Pettis might wind up my top receiver in this class. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're doing I'm, some things here. I like it. You, you know, I mean, it's just it, and it it won't be by much, but it's it's just the fact that when you, to me, you know, I, my buddy Sigmund Bloom at Football Guys, I know that he's not a, as big of a fan because he he likes the big guys. You know, I joke that when he looks in the mirror, he sees Brandon Marshall because he <laughs> loved because he loved Brandon Marshall when he, Brandon Marshall was coming out of school, um, and he was on to him very early. S- Sig's got but, some law school pragmatism, not unlike myself, to him. You know? yeah, <laughs> see, right? <laughs> see, there you go. So he's, but you know, he 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 tends to shy away from the thinner guys. Like he was always nervous about Martavis Bryant because he thought that Bryant didn't win the ball well, but I thought Bryant won the ball just fine, you know, at the end of his career at, at Clemson. And I think Pettis shows enough of that, that I'm not really worried about the big fade route thing. And if that's the only thing that he doesn't do well, well, you can throw the ball over people's heads and he's going to win it. You can give it to him in the middle of the field and he's going to weave through people. He, you know, he's, he's got moves and flexibility to avoid being pressed on a level where he's going to get out muscled and sure Patrick Peterson's going to get his hands on him and shut him down for half of a game or three quarters of a game or all but two plays in the game. But just like Marvin Harrison, if you have a good quarterback, you might make that impact play one or two plays in that game and actually score a touchdown (laughs) and have a, uh, and have a, have a say in that game because you're, you're good enough. And sometimes you have to understand that it's not about that good football players aren't perfect. There are no perfect football players other than maybe, you know, Jim Brown and Jerry Rice, but, <laughs> or Walter Payton, you know, and, and even then you, you know, you look at those Bo guys Jackson, as, right up until Bo, the yeah, I'm sorry. I, I forgot about him, but he, I, I forgot he's not human. So that was just, a, he was a, he was a tall tale in a football uniform. So, uh, you know, gosh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Pettis is that type of guy. So I like them wow. and, 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 you know, I think that I, you mentioned Ridley, there's a number of good guys in there and Sutton, uh, I, I'm yeah, probably, what do you make I, of him? <laughs> oh, I, want I feel better just by that reaction. I feel I just have go, no idea what to do with him. I, I'm going to people are going to lose their mind. I love that you mentioned Deion Kane. I really like Deion Kane, but um, Cortland Sutton, if it doesn't change today, will not even be in my top 20 receivers in this wow. class. See, and people are going to lose here, their mind. Look at what you get They're here on the Browns Note podcast. I love yeah. it. And I'm it. not even, and I'm not trying to like you're not be controversial peddling, peddling. I know that. Yeah, I, I'm not. It's just, but it's like, but I, I just have that kind of process. I mean, I like Spencer Ware when he right. was not even going to get drafted. And I talked about him or Isaiah Crowell. I remember I wrote about Isaiah Crowell and said, he's the most talented draft pick um, running back in his class and he's not going to get drafted. And here's why. 
And I mean, yeah, the Browns fans would like to have seen more from him, but you know, at the same time, An unbelievable ROI on a, on a UDFA. There's exactly. No way around that. Yeah, exactly. So when I look at Cortland Sutton, he kind of reminds, you know, I look at him and obviously if he can fix the fact, if he can fix his ills, he and he hits he's well within the value of a top 10 receiver in this class and there's no doubt he has that upside so if you're going to take him you're you're basically being prepared for the swells that are about to come with his acclimation and part of that is that part of it begins with inconsistent effort when it comes to the you know blocking people go oh blocking what's so important about that well you know a lot, yeah. a lot you know and it also tells you it also, when you see that he doesn't make the effort as a blocker, when he's 6'4", 215 and quick, and that he doesn't make the effort to yeah, get the angles that he should, right. it, it shouldn't take much at all. I mean, even guys who don't like blocking, who are like 6'1", 178, at least know how to show the effort as if they're trying a little bit and act it out a little bit. Sutton doesn't even do that. On top of that, it bleeds into his route running. And you'll see that there'll be inconsistent effort with how he runs routes. And it's not the Randy boss. I play when I want to play where he's being super honest about how the game is. And, and then the talking heads at ESPN decide that they're going to puff out their chests and, and, and do an editorial about, about it when every receiver has some of those types of things going on. It, it's more about the fact that he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't, follow through with the details and ends up committing offensive pass interference and penalties because he wasn't focused on what he was supposed to do. Um, and, and he creates issues that way. And then there's just catching the football. Everyone talks about, I remember the, the summer, everyone was saying, Oh, he's great at going up to win the ball in the air. And I kept thinking, okay, every time I watch him, the ball bounces off his hands and he's fighting the ball, if not dropping it. So it's and, not Josh Doxon. <laughs> no, no. If you know, when you think about receivers catching the ball, the technique is that, you know, that diamond technique, you know, when you go up for the ball above your, your chest and you have your two index fingers pointed and it's almost like you're making a triangle with your thumbs together and your index fingers together. And the, and the whole the point ball goes in there, right? Exactly. Like you create the web. Cortland Sutton is when you're happy, when you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> <laughs> and he claps his hands. Oh, that that's ball. a perfect visual. <laughs> and he hits, and the ball strikes his palms. And, of course, when your palms strike the ball, as opposed to the wonders of engineering that those, you know, six to, to ten digits that you can get around, you know, the ball and st- and they're they're genetically engineered to be able to detect the spin and be able to stop it and break it in, in all 10 different ways. Instead, you're trying to do it with your palms. You're basically having a ball ricochet off a barn door or a pair of barn doors. And that's what happens to him a lot. He doesn't get his hands in the right position. When he does, the ball tends to hit his right hand before it hits his left hand and then kind of rattles around in there. And I'm glad that he can make some catches against, you know, Texas State or whoever mm-hmm. that, he, you know, some of the schools that he played. And, and he does and he'll make some plays in tight coverage and he will probably end up starting first year and and making some plays for you. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if he has a Dwayne Bow like career where it's just kind of a the effort's not always there. He's got to be challenged and. And he inexplicably drops balls that you're counting on him to catch. And there's too many players who may not be as talented, but far more consistent with at least approaching his level of talent that 
I, I would rather have ahead of him because what we mistake in the draft process is, is this whole combine mentality, which is they go, okay, well, you know, faster is better. More weight lifted is, is, is better. You know, the, the quicker, the time, the, the more, the reps, the better, the player, when really all that's about is what's the threshold of how much he should lift. What's the minimum that he should be able to run? The rest is kind of gravy. And if you and if you doubly you give double bonuses or triple bonuses or quadruple bonuses to to certain level of speed, then you're missing out on the fact that an important part of speed is processing information with good technique and executing that consistently. And it doesn't matter as a wide receiver if you run a four three forty. If you run routes like you run a four seven forty, and mm-hmm. and there's lots of good YouTube videos out there. There's a coach who I remember showed that with a, a receiver that he that he had timed at a four four and one he had timed at like a four seven, and he showed them running the same type of routes and with the same type of coverage, and showing how that the four seven guy played like the four three guy and vice versa. Man, good stuff. I'm. Uh there's so many of these guys I want to get in deeper to, um, but let's do some more if you want. Let's I'm okay with it. Let's uh, the, the, I mean, we got to do the running backs and the quarterbacks, the running backs, because that group of wide receivers to me, it's, it, I, I don't even know where to sort of start and finish the group. And so I think we've, we've at least given a nice little entrance into it. And when I, when I look at the running backs, I start to think this is an area where there's like, there's actually an urgency to this discussion because we're suddenly hearing about this notion of Saquon Barkley at one. And I keep going back to, look, I love, I think Saquon Barkley's really impressive. I mean, I'm not here to tell anybody anything bad about Saquon Barkley. Could I nitpick if I wanted to? Probably. Right. Does it matter? Probably not. For me, it's a philosophical question of whether you're taking a running back at this phase of your trajectory as this team anywhere near the top five. I'm not personally doing it. Are you number one, number two, talk to us about the rest of these guys, because look to me, Barkley, it seems like almost everybody thinks he's number one. It's not, to me, it's not such a foregone conclusion, but I would probably have him in the, in the top slot among the running backs. I'm just kind of wondering as you process the rest of this group and you start to think about, okay, you're the Browns, you're looking at this group, you know, within the context of I've got a bazillion picks, I've got an offense where running back production really wasn't the thing that I was failing at, though I could stand to upgrade on what Crow was doing. I mean, it's hard to argue with what Duke did when he got what opportunity he got. And so I look at the rest of that team building process and I think, look, I can get what I need from the running back position on this team really easily without spending a top five pick on it. And there are a bunch of guys in this draft that allow me to think that walk me through your view of this group that you did great on these other positions. So I'll just shut up and listen. No, I mean, it's, I hear you. And it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I like how you're looking at this because I mean, this is a really strong running back class. It might be the strongest running back class that I've ever looked at in, the, in since I've been doing the rookie scouting portfolio. The strongest one before that was the 2007 class with Darren McFadden, who I didn't like, but guys like Chris Johnson, Jamal Charles, Matt Forte, who I loved, Rashard Mendenhall. I mean, that was a pretty loaded group of guys, and and so you know whether they worked all worked out or not, the talent 
Felix Jones. I mean, these are all guys that were, you know, really exciting and for a lot of times really good reasons. Last year, I thought was close to rivaling that. And now this year's kind of blown that out of the water. This year, this year, probably my fourth ranked running back might have been like 12th on this list. That's how good this, this group is. And, and that's why when you think about it, fans tend to, you know, look at running back a big wide receiver and a quarterback in mythical proportions. And they can blow that out of proportion to the point that they think that if you take that guy, he's going to do magical things for you in the way that like, you know, Michael Jordan on a basketball court would do, you know, that the game Mm. is that way. And I think that they, I think that they tend to project that level of like, he's going to save us. You know, I think about Reggie Bush and when Reggie Bush came out, how I was I was certainly a part of this group where, you know, hearing people talk about he was the best thing since Gale Sayers and all the hype that there was about. I thought him. he was all that and the proverbial yeah. bag of chips, to be sure. Yeah, me too. You know, and and he thought that he had to be and he tried so hard to, like, mm-hmm. make every play count on a level that he began, he was making decisions that he didn't make at USC. He didn't make some of those crazy decisions and it took him seasons to figure out that he, that he needed to play within himself. And, and by the time he did, he was already banged up enough that he wasn't totally the same guy. So, you know, when you look at it from this perspective, here we go, you know, as the Browns, if, if I was, again, if, if, if we're looking at it, this is the hardest part is that we're gaslighting ourselves because we want to say if, if we were an, uh, if we were a logical organization, if we were a group of like well-balanced people <laughs> who were if. all working together, it's a big if. <laughs> you know, if, we, if we were what you would, I would look at this and go, we have all these picks. We have a, uh, we have a defense that's starting to get some talent. We have a good offensive line that we acquired free agents and we've got, we, as long as he can stay emotionally balanced, we have the most devastating wide receiver in the league. We have a young talent who's playing opposite him, who, despite some of the growing pains that he's had is a, is kind of a yak demon. If you can get in the ball in his hands and a promising tight end. And yeah, we've got a competent running back who actually is pretty darn good um, and was probably the first in the long line of really great Georgia running backs who've come along since then, um, even though he got kicked out of the school. But, you know, he's matured on a level that are you really going to blame the running back when, you know, when you have so many different things going on, you know, with this team where are, they may not be able to get in and stay in game scripts where that they can pound the ball with him. So, you know, from that perspective, I look at this and I look at the depth and strength of this class where there's 11 guys that I would feel great about getting any one of them and feel like that I'm getting a quality runner and and more than that. And I think if I'm going to build this Cleveland Browns team, I'm going to continue to build along the line. I'm going to continue to build along the defense. I want to I, I hope that there's a quarterback 
or two quarterbacks that I feel like are similar that I'm excited about and that can execute the offense that we want to do and that maybe we can add a veteran to help guide them along. And if it, and, and on that level, I would want to take a quarterback and I would, that I've pinpointed and, and really continue to add the surrounding talent around it. If I don't like any of these quarterbacks, then I'm, definitely going to take as much talent as I can. And I would feel compelled to look at Saquon Barkley and consider him because of the fact that if I wasn't going quarterback, that I, then my strategy would be, I'm going to build the hell out of this team and I'm going to, but even then, aren't you trying to trade out of that first slot? If that's the truth Yeah, in in this draft, you can't be taking that first pick as a running back. Well, I'm a, I'm, I, this is where my weakness is because I mean, I'm I love touchdowns as much as the next guy to be sure. Yeah. I'm just about studying talent more than anything yeah. when it comes to this. And I'm probably sounding like a cop out as I talk about this organizational stuff, but I never really play like GM junior when it comes to like the draft <laughs> part. I never <laughs> like, do the, wise. <laughs> you know, I just, I just, I, you know, I'm, I don't have interest in salary cap. I don't have interest in, in, you know, what, how many points on the, on uh, you know, on the, the trade value chart equals what, and, and what the rules are about who you take. I just want good players, <laughs> and, you know? And so I, I you know, when I, for sure. yeah. So, so if you think Saquon Barkley is that kind of guy, I mean, I think he could be, I think that he will likely be. Um, but I also know that there are guys that I like nearly as much, if not maybe just a little bit more. And, and depending on how you clear, use them. In this draft, yeah. you mean? Yeah, just right. one I guy. I feel better. Go ahead. <laughs> there's one guy I like just a little bit more, and I'll talk about him in a minute. But, but yeah, when you look at it that way, I think, okay, if my goal is – I just, if I were, if someone said, Matt, you're going to get to do, you're going to get to tell the Browns what to do. I would say, all right, you guys suck at picking a quarterback. You have not picked a good quarterback since Bernie Kosar. So because of that, what we're going to do is we are going to build this team in every angle other than the quarterback. And we're going to build a team that's so good that when Drew Brees run his contract runs out or Tom Brady gets in another petty fight with somebody in the <laughs> Patriots or Aaron Rodgers finally decides that, you know, he and Green Bay are on the outs and there are you can there suddenly 30, get Russell Wilson in the third round. Yeah, you t- keep taking shots in the third or fourth round on guys, you know, and that kind of thing. But in if you don't hit on that, then you just you know, or Russell Wilson gets tired of playing for the Seahawks, you know, and the, his contract runs out, whatever, whoever these guys are, and you view. have a team that is great. <laughs> you do what the Denver Broncos did, which is basically, we've got the team just add the quarterback, you know, who's not going to, what quarterback whose contract ran out is not going to want to go to the Cleveland Browns with a great defense, a you great offensive this line. Is exactly what Minnesota is doing right now in the Kirk. Cousins yes. Game. Yes, exactly. And it makes and a so, ton of sense. Why not have yes. a team for which, you know, where, Sell the whereby, quarterback right, to come to you. Right. At worst. Yeah. So, yeah, be, be the team that they go, oh, man. I, yeah, I, I'm going to miss New Orleans, but oh, man. You know, Sean, Sean Payton's retired. I, I want to play another year. You guys drafted Lamar Jackson. 
whatever, you know, whatever it was, you know, he, this guy's nipping at my heels. They, they're going to, they're going to continue to make him the future. I still want to play. They're pushing me out. Oh man, that's what you want to do. So, you know, if Barkley to me is, if you're going to run an offense where you're going to throw the ball to the back a lot, Saquon Barkley's probably going to be your top guy because he in space, he's devastating because he's got the speed to run through, no doubt. you know, obviously, yep. you, you know, guys, but he's also Do you think you know, of him unbelievably as agile as a running back in the no. traditional sense. No. And that's what's shocking about him is that when you watch him, he goes down on wraps and first contact a lot more often than, than the, the, the reputation precedes him to, to have. And that's why he's, He's by the thinnest of margins ever, not my top back in this class based on just all around play. And I, I, I kind of framed this in this way back, you know, in 2007, I think it was, or 2006, you know, there were who, I don't remember what year it was, but there were two backs and one was the generational back and he was a generational back, um, in Adrian Peterson and he, you know, but but when I, you look, I, I go back to Adrian because I saw him in person at the Rose Bowl against UCLA. Oh, man. And I, look, I feel like I've seen a lot of guys, okay? Adrian Peterson is among the greatest things I've ever seen on a football field. Me too. Me too. And and there has not been a running back since that I've felt that way about. And I know that, Agreed. you know, I, I, I mean, this year in fantasy football, people were getting mad at me because I was literally saying Adrian Peterson's not done. He's just at a point where the teams are going to say they're done with him because he's yeah, not, he's a normal you know, running back now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the breakaway speed, but man, when he, he played Tampa and when he was healthy early on, he looked, he still looked like Adrian Peterson and he always still did. It's because he didn't have, he didn't have a line in Minnesota cause they were so banged up. But they wanted to get away from what he does best. So when you talk about what people do best, if you're looking for a running, you know, there was Adrian Peterson, but he, he, you know, as I remember saying, this is a guy that you're going to mention him in the same breath as Walter Payton, Jim Brown, Earl Campbell, the whole pantheon of, of running backs one day. He's that good. But if you're talking about playing right away or having low, low risk, He's still a low risk guy, but there's another guy who's lower risk because this guy doesn't fumble. This guy doesn't try to bounce plays outside and in an opportune time and take losses. Who is it? And and he plays hurt. And I saw him play on two sprained ankles against USC's massive team with Pete Carroll and Uh. just like played really well. And he was just, he wasn't unbelievably fast, but he could catch. And he, after contact, he was just as good maybe as Adrian Peterson in certain levels. And that was Marshawn Lynch. And I had Marshawn Lynch. I, I, I remember telling people, I, I love Adrian Peterson and I would, and I hate that I even have him second to Marshawn Lynch, but I like Marshawn Lynch just a little bit more. And in this class, if you know, if I was looking for a specific fit of things, Barkley would fit a lot of those categories, maybe ahead of the guy I like. And it's not because I worked at the University of Georgia or graduated from there. I've never been to a UGA football game other than to cover practices back in the day when I would, when Terrell Davis and Garrison Hurst were there and I was a student, I have never actually gone to a game and I've never been like a real fan, but Nick Chubb to me, is is 
is the best running back in this class. And I know people are going to think I'm crazy and I probably will be wrong. Wouldn't it be a closer discussion anyway if he hadn't gotten hurt? That's the whole thing. And that's what makes me, this is what's making me like smile about this because that's the answer everyone gives is that he, if, if he wasn't hurt, maybe that would be a valid discussion, but he got hurt and therefore he wasn't quite the same. I'm with you. But, but okay. So I'm looking at the com. Let's just start with the combine. All right. So Saquon Barkley, four, four. All right. So Nick Chubb, four, five, two. Well, you know, you might look at that and say, well, Chubb's five pounds lighter and he ran, you know, a a 12th of a second, you know, slower. Well, the 40 time is probably the least important metric for running back because very rarely do they run 40 yards in a straight line in the pro game. And they Um, often don't start from the track starting position in the pro game. No, they don't. You know, it's about change of direction and acceleration. So let's look at that acceleration. Well, you know. Nick Chubb ran, or Saquon Barkley ran a 4.24. Nick Chubb ran a 4.25. Okay, pretty darn close. Pretty much the same. You know, um, when you look at the three cone time, 7.09. Pretty. That's a good time. You know, that's that's certainly it's not as fast as what Barkley ran, but the change of direction is good. Um, the vertical, 38.5, still freakishly high, even though not in the 40s. Bench press 29 inches, um, 29, yeah, 29 inches or 29 reps. So when you look at Chubb, he's strong, he's quick, he's explosive. And I saw that explosion last year. It was there. There are some plays where I think it's against South Carolina and Kentucky where you see him accelerate on some plays and you're like, that's, that's the acceleration you see from kick returners in short space. Like he had that kind of pop. And when you watch him, you got to understand that this was a guy that he's just get rounding back into his physical form two years removed from injury. But even though he returned nine months after tearing three ligaments other than the ACL, which my buddy Gene Bramlett football guys, when I told him that thought I was wrong and had to go look it back up because he thought there was no way that he came back in nine months from that injury, because that's actually a weirder and more difficult injury than just tearing your ACL. And, and when we, I read him the story and we looked it up and we're talking about it on the way back to the senior bowl, he was like, I got to really look into this. He was really kind of amazed by it. But Chubb came back nine months later was lifting more weight than Derrick Henry's celebrated, you know, squats on, you know, on YouTube. He w- and Chubb actually had lifted 650 pounds in squats when he was in high school. So he's not even back to that quite yet. But when you watch him on tape, he has better vision than Barkley in terms of his maturity between the tackles. So I don't really care about the athletic hmm. part. The athletic part to me is that he's almost on par with Saquon Barkley, almost removed from an injury that, you know, the medical community would look at and look at with some level of doubt, but we have not heard a word about his injury being an issue from the combine medicals. And, and he's looked healthy for two years and he's regained that burst. And when you look uh, at that. I don't know how you look at the Rose Bowl and think otherwise. 
Yeah, yeah. And you think about that. He's he's play, he's splitting time with Sony Michelle, so the narratives end up being Sony Michelle being probably a top five or top <laughs> I was six back himself. I watched Sony Michelle and I think that guy's awfully good. I can understand giving him the ball a few times. Yeah, and he can catch well on the backfield, so let's split the duties. You know, when you look at it, you know, we we're old Browns fans, so if you say you know, Kevin Mack could have been a uh, starting running back in the league. Ernest Biner could have been a starting running back in the in the league. Well, let's split up the duties with them. Does it mean that Kevin Mack couldn't play in the red zone because they gave red zone carries to to Ernest Biner? You know, I mean, could the, you know could, would we say that just because Kevin Mack caught some screen passes that Ernest Biner couldn't catch? You, yeah, you know, you can yeah. nitpick the things about Nick Chubb, but. Nick Chubb caught over 25 balls in his freshman year. You know, he can pass protect. He's, but you know, you gotta, you, Sony Michelle's excellent in the screen game. He's good out on the edges. So you, you divvy up the duties. And when Nick Chubb came into the game, guess what defenses knew? They're going to run it between the tackles. Guess what defenses did? They stacked the box. So they put 10 or 11 in there and it still didn't matter most of the time unless he played Alabama, you know? So, and, and that's where it matters just about for everybody. So when you look at his game, where can I I get Nick Chubb in this draft? Do you think? I, I think, I think at the end of the first round, um, maybe the early second round. So if you had say 32 and 35, you might be willing not to take a running back at one. Oh, I would take Nick Chubb and I'd be smiling the entire time because I think I got the best running back in the draft um, when it comes to between the tackles. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what you lack if you're the Browns. I really do. I I think you lack that more than you lack the overall, quote unquote, playmaking of Saquon Barkley. And I don't want to denigrate Saquon because I really do think he's he's, he's fantastic. He's going to be a really good player in the NFL. It's just it's strictly a matter of. This to me is a philosophical question, not a talent question. And I yeah. always, I hate how those lines get unnecessarily do you, blurred. So. Do you want to, you know, you, you have, it takes, you know, the best teams have the best 11 players. They right. don't have one great There's player. There's no one way We've, to skin this cat. There's no one. No. When Brett Favre was a great player, he, it wasn't just him. He had great talent around him when he won Super Bowls. John Elway, when he was a great player, had he lost Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl until they got surrounding talent around him at the end of his career. You know, you know, Peyton Manning, he had great talent around him. On the Hall of Fame ballot, and exactly, and should go. Yes, Marvin Harrison's already got a gold jacket. Yes, so Tony Dungy's already got a gold jacket. Jeff Saturday, you know, the the offensive line that they had behind Manning at that point. So when you look at it from that perspective, you know, it's it's probably better that you look at it and say, okay, where's the where's the depth of talent and where's the where's the talent that it's thin? But they have there's a really there's some really strong players at the top that we need who are also rare and they are not at, they're at a position where you can't find that later and that you can't get, you know, you can win without a great running back. If you have a great offensive line and you have a competent running back, you can win a lot of games. But if you have a great running back and not a really strong offensive line, I mean, all you're doing is wishing that you have Jim Brown, OJ Simpson, Gale Sayers, you know, Walter Payton, and that you hope that Barkley is that guy. And he may very well turn out to be that guy, 
but until he shows that, you know, there are some nitpick things that yeah, you can kind of do ask, with him. It? It's a lot to ask, and you, you're already building your team in the right direction. Continue stockpiling that talent, and, you know, the running back position is like shooting guard in the NBA. You can you can pretty much get a guy off the street, and they can do a pretty good job for you. Now, they may not be Barkley, you know, at that level, but it's also the position that tends to have the most wear and tear and turnover. So it's that's another reason where and it's a guy really, who you have to presume if you're taking a running back, you're not picking up that second deal. So this is a short term deal. Yes, yes. So it's it's just kind of one of those things are if Saquon Barkley was the final piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, exactly, you know, exactly. You know, the, the the charter crashed in Cleveland and ran aground in Lake Erie. Whereas and Christian half McCaffrey the team was, was out for six weeks with non-serious injuries. Thank you. Exactly. You know, and not and your team lost the final eight games and is now picking in the top five. But everyone's coming back fully healthy. And you were a AFC championship caliber team, you take Saquon Barkley. There you go. Now we're talking. All right. Well, so with the rest of these guys then, I mean, look. I'm with you. I think Chubb's fantastic. I like Geis an awful lot. I like Ronald Jones in a specific role an awful lot. I think Royce Freeman shows you stuff on tape where you're like, man, if I knew this guy was going to be clean, healthy, I'd, I'd think an awful lot of him. Sony Michelle, you mentioned, I, I watched Sony Michelle in the Rose Bowl and in some other games. I mean, I've seen all their plays by now. Most of the, these top several running backs I've actually seen in some depth. I feel like Sony Michelle is a pretty. He gives you a lot of pop. There's some physicality to him for a guy of his stature. But, again, this whole list of guys, Jones, Geis, Freeman, Michelle, Penny from San Diego State that we haven't even mentioned yet, there are a bunch of guys in this class to me that if you have even a remote concept of how to deal with the running by running back by committee concept, I mean, these guys are going to help you. Yeah, they're going to help you in a big way. And and all the ones you mentioned, I mean, Geis is great after contact. He certainly understands how to set up defenders. Freeman is ex- absolutely intriguing because he's got that great size. And at the same time, he is much quicker and faster than he sometimes looks. He's what everyone thought Jeremy Hill might turn into. You know, um, he's 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 kind of that he can be a punishing player, but he's a very smart player in terms of footwork. We did not mention Carrion Johnson out of Auburn, who, when I look at him and you saw what he did at the combine, My God. Um, he's not yeah, unbelievably strong. For sure. Yeah, no, no, it's all right. I mean, there's there's such a big list. It's it's hard to keep up with everybody. But this is a guy that might be on the same tier as the the first two guys we mentioned. I think he's I think he is. I think that he's got terrific vision and balance and he knows how to use his pads and leverage and he will attack you um but he can also run away from you and you know then there's you know you talked about jones but then there's guys like bo scarborough who who can give you that kind of legarrett blunt type of skill um in terms of being able to you know run over you but also press and cut in the hole and he can give you some things that are surprisingly good there's there's late round guys like Chris Warren, who's you know Chris Warren the third. I was going to say I was uncomfortable with the, I was going to. I'm uncomfortable with all the Chris Warrens. I can't keep them straight. This is the son of Seattle son. Chris Warren, right? That's right. You know, six two two fifty. He had a four point one eight twenty shuttle. 
at 250. Now, when you watch him move, you see the quickness, but you wonder about the agility, even though he ran a 6.983 cone, which was pretty darn good. He's got a 4.6940, so he's not extremely fast. But again, he runs through people. He pushes defensive linemen backwards. I mean, this is, you know, but there's even guys like Jordan Wilkins out of Old Miss who, you know, has that Arian Foster kind of vibe to how he plays. And then, you know, if if you if you want to get kind of crazy, there's even a guy like no one's talking about who I've loved all year long, and it's out of Northwestern is Justin Jackson. Ah. Now, he's only six feet one ninety three, but he remind you know everyone talks about Ronald Jones and they go Jamal Charles or Chris Johnson like you know there's all these comparisons to to the Jamal Charles. Everyone wants to compare somebody to Jamal Charles. I think Justin Jackson is a guy that would that actually compares more favorably to him than any back I've seen in a while. I mean, he is he is unbelievably quick. You know, he had the 4.0720 shuttle and a 6.813 cone, 38.5 vertical. So you've got the explosion there. 4.540. He catches. He is. He has terrific vision, and he knows how to do what. Jamal Charles always did well, which is he had touchdowns from a long way away (laughs) that yes, that and to be able to attack defenders first so that he's always the one establishing Mm -hmm. contact Mm -hmm. and do, and then working off of that contact as opposing to let people hit him first. So I I look at him and I think he's going to end up being like this fifth, sixth round pick. And if, if he falls, and he's going to go on a team, and in like two years, we're going to be looking at him and going, where did he come from? You know, he's that – he's been that kind of player. He's their best running back in Northwestern history. And when you look at his game, it, it blows me away sometimes. And these are these are backs that when you look at the Browns, I mean, you can get a, a pretty good variety of players – who can give you every down looks. If that's really what you're looking for right now, if you don't, if there aren't other positions, which I think there are that they really could address first. (laughs) um, I would, I would love to have the mad more receivers. I mean, just because you know, you look at, you you look at the unstable nature of their unstable nature of their, you know, starting core for one reason or the other. And, there's not much behind it. True story. And so, you know, and when you can, you can get guys like Byron Pringle or Kiki QT or Dante Pettis or Calvin Ridley or James Washington or Christian Kirk or DJ Moore, or Anthony Miller, who all can play special teams for you and play some, a lot of them I mentioned could play in the slot. Or I mean, outside. Pettis is one of the greatest returners in the history of the college football sport. Yeah. I mean, so you, to play special teams is one thing. He's right there with Peppers in terms of special teams return ability. So you're talking about guys that have real, real ability that's proven. Yeah, and can also play, you know, punt coverage team yep. if you need them to. And and so when you get guys like this who can deliver for you also in, you know, as both slot and deep guys so that you can take some pressure off of Josh Gordon – because of the fact that, you know, it's hard to, it seems like it's a little hard right now to be sure that we can count on Corey Coleman 
right now. He's got to prove that he can stay on the field. Our, our reliability factor in the wide receiver core is not high. <laughs> yeah, it's very low. And, and beyond those two guys, you you don't have anybody who's really, you know, a red zone threat, a deep threat. You've got you've got slower, you know, route running types. But or you have guys like Sammy Coates who has no business being on that team. Sorry, but it's just true. It's just not, you know, you get guys who are just not smart football players who are not mature football players. The fact that Kenny Britt and Sammy Coates were on this team is a is an example of what's going what was going on last year in terms of whoever wanted them was not. It really is not up to the times of of what those guys were about because Sammy Coates can't track the ball. He couldn't track the ball over his head. He's, you know, the, the fact that they, that the Steelers drafted Smith Schuster and he got in a Twitter war with his own teammate, <laughs> you, you know, is a good example that he's not a mature professional. And, and on top of that, he wasn't a good football player at that level. He was a freak show athlete, but he was not a wide receiver. And when you, when, you know, it was the Browns game, I believe where he had that great week, but they had to throw him the ball, like an ungodly number of times for him to actually catch it, um, (laughs) enough to actually do damage. That's a pretty telling story that he's not an efficient football player. Um, you know, so when you look at situations like that, you, you know, building that depth is more important at this stage and having players of the future or players who can take over because great. You got Saquon Barkley. You didn't get a wide receiver. Josh Gordon's gone again for forever. And Corey Coleman's, you know, can't deal with the cold and he caught a cold or something happened. And now you're dealing with Richard Higgins, who's an, 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 a nice, you know, second tier slot receiver on your depth chart as your as a guy that you want to put on the outside um so great you got a quarterback you got a running back but again you still can't throw the ball downfield you can't get leads you can't build on running the ball you're out of game script and all you're doing is throwing checkdowns to Saquon Barkley as defenses are teeing off on him. And he makes five people miss and fans are ooing <laughs> on about it. But he gained eight yards. Oh, and he sprained his knee because he, he made that, you know, fifth effort trying to gain those eight yards, you know, in a third and 25. And defenses knew what was coming. And that was just a great pick in, in number four overall or number one overall when you could have gotten, you know, more continuity in depth. So it's, it, you know, I may be wrong about that, but it can, that's some of the, that's kind of the, that's the storyline of what the worst could happen. If you pick a guy where you could have, meanwhile, picked the, you know, you could have gotten the Ridley or the Kirk or the Moore or the Miller. You could have maybe gotten two of those guys. You probably could have gotten, you know, uh, you know, some of these, you know, excellent players who are non-skill position players and in the third or fourth round, you could have taken your shot on – you can say, well, we got Crowell and we feel pretty good about him. But, you know, Royce Freeman's still sitting there. Let's give him a shot see what we got going on here. You know, oh, Ronald Jones dropped because of the 4-6-5-40. Oh, let's, let's give him a shot. Oh, this Justin Jackson guy is pretty good. How about that guy out of Oregon? Yeah, I mean, you remember, he kind of looks like Peyton Hillis. Remember Peyton Hillis back in the day? Ryan Dahl. Maybe we can, maybe we can look at, maybe we'll get him and this Jordan Wilkins kid who, who has great vision back at, you know, as a UDFA. And we can get two of these guys and they'll compete and 
One of them runs, you know, Crowell back into the. You hey, know, what say we roll? Sheets. What say we roll Willie Sneed and Taylor Gabriel out there to do some stuff? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it, that's exactly the point. So you, you know, you. But the the point is, is that hopefully they have a plan. Hopefully they stay the course with it this time around. But we're, we're not going to know that for another two to three years you know, down the line, because this is once again, a new regime. And I just look, I've kind of joked around that. I think it was Mark Schofield over it, um, inside the pylon who had a meme of like, I guess somebody was trying to, he and his buddy were trying to rob some store and they were going to throw bricks into this like display window. And so one of them instructed the other to get out of the way while he threw the first brick and the guy behind him <laughs> threw the brick and hit him in the head and knocked him down. And Mark Schofield was like, give us your best NFL meme for this. And I was like, I was like, Jimmy Haslam, I was saying this was me as Jimmy Haslam saying, yeah, Hugh Jackson, we're, you're good. We've got Todd Haley to have your back, you know, because that's what's going to happen. I think that Todd Haley with John Dorsey, you know, yeah, what's going to happen is Todd Haley is going to be the head coach next year. Um, at the end of the year, you know, he's a coordinator now. He'll probably be the coach next year. And Hugh Jackson will be, you know, he'll have gotten his year and he'll have screwed it up or the team will have screwed it up with him, And and they'll put Haley in right behind him. And so <laughs> we'll see, you know, and, and we'll have Kansas City Chiefs Midwest. I we, don't know, we will maybe. at least have some structural alignment, will we not? We probably will. So it's, you know, that's the, that's what it looks like right now. If you're, if you have the soap opera mentality, maybe he will do great and, and, you know, it'll all work out and I hope so, but that's, you know, right now the track record says probably not. Man, brother Waldman, you have more than enough latent hostility to remain a true Browns fan. I got to <laughs> tell you, um, <laughs> it is, that was, that was quite something. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I've been sitting here drinking this evening, a bottle of prisoner as I pour it for some sound effect, <laughs> a bottle of a red wine called prisoner. Another of my favorites, by the way, is called the pessimist. So I am well covered as a Browns fan. <laughs> um, that's great. But I'm going to I'm going to just leave it with sort of a teaser cuz we'll talk about the quarterbacks when we do it. Mr. Waldman is going to come on and be the voice of uh of the Lamar Jackson case in the case of the quarterbacks for the Cleveland Browns. And um I look forward to that discussion. We'll have it shortly here and then I I still am working out the sort of sequencing of the release of this quality content, but we'll get to that later. Tell me without spoiling that episode too much just kind of your view um you've got let's take it from a browns centric standpoint i mean look to me there are a lot of guys that are at least uh, and again this is from my perspective at least this year far more art than science but from my perspective there are at least four guys i would put in the discussion for worthy of the number one overall pick for the Browns this year in this draft um, as quarterbacks. And I'm just kind of wondering how you see the class in general, and then we'll leave the really good stuff for the other one. Yeah, I think it's a good class. It, it was really hyped 
um, on a heavy level this time last year to the point that it was unrealistically being hyped as, oh, don't worry about the 2017 class. It's not that good. <laughs> no, you'll you just know? pick one off the tree in 2018. Just, just pick one off the tree in 2018. These guys are all-timers, you know, between, you know, Rosen and Sam Darnold just on their own. Those two were like godlike at this time last year while everyone was kind of ignoring Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson and, you know, and some other guys that were also pretty good, darn good. So, yeah, I like the class. I think that there's three who are – there's one in a tier by himself, and I think that there are two in a tier just below that. And the fourth one, I think, is in a tier where kind of like Watson, if you put a good offense around him that matches what his skills are, you could have a productive starting quarterback in the league, and that to me is Baker Mayfield. So, you know, it's a – I think the Browns just have to really understand themselves, and that's, again – that's the hard part about all this is I don't think they do. Oh, man. Ain't that the truth? All right. Well, that's the perfect backdrop to it, and I'm going to leave it at that because I'm looking forward to chatting with you about Lamar. We'll do it relative to the other guys, and everybody will get everything they need on that. So, Matt, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. You've been, frankly, unreasonably generous with your time tonight. This this got a little uh, – it got lengthy, but, frankly, anybody that enjoys my podcast, I assume – will enjoy this one because it's been one of my absolute favorites and i thank you for joining me man oh man it's my pleasure this was a lot of fun all right i hope you all enjoyed that as much as i did that's probably impossible because i was having a great time uh got to go on longer than we anticipated we chatted about a great number of things that I think are interesting and that have to do with sort of the way teams get built or not built as the case may be. And, uh, and Matt's got really, really interesting thoughts on all of it. So that was that he'll be back in another episode here shortly. When we talk about each of the quarterback prospects that may be in play at that number one spot, that was Matt Waldman. Once again, find him at Matt Waldman. You can find me, Ryan Burns at FTBL sickness. You find the podcast at the Browns note on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. Go Browns. Woof.